Hi, everyone. This is Emily, and you are listening to Backyard Pet Talk with Shannon Riley. Hi, Emily. We are back at our Positive Puppy Podcast. And so any of you who have been listening know that we check in, Emily and our good, good friends. And we, um, she got a puppy and said, hey, why don't we just record all of my puppy questions? So that is how Positive Puppy Podcast was started. If you have missed episodes, go back. We start from before she got her little sweet Teddy. So talking about picking breeders and preparing for puppy. And so now we are getting into adolescent puppy time. So Emily, how old is Denny now? Five, six months? He's almost six months. Okay. So now we, if so, go back and listen. If you've got questions or you're wondering about puppy stuff that's younger than this, go back. But we will keep updating puppy questions as Teddy evolves. And I'm sure these are questions that you have as well. So I never know what Emily's questions are going to be. So it's very much like you're listening to our conversation of puppy questions. So hopefully they help you as well. So Emily, what's your first question for today? We've left behind, you know, the terrible two month old, right? (laughs) And he's not really biting anymore. You know, he's potty trained, right? And And so the first thing I want to ask you about is what is like the very big overarching process that we can think through when we want to fix unwanted behaviors? And I want you to think super broad, right? Because everyone's pup has very specific behaviors that they don't want to continue happening. And so I have two specific examples for Teddy, but Mm -hmm. I want you to talk. So maybe we can go through those two specific examples, but then I want you to talk about like how you devise these plans because Teddy's unwanted behaviors are going to be different than somebody else's unwanted behaviors. And every time, like when I'm working with private, I just had a private client this morning and I told her, I'm like, not ever is one behavior plan or training plan the same? Exactly. You know, there might be similarities, but there's never, because there can be a treat difference. There can be a size difference. There could be a house difference. There could be a breed difference. There's always something unique to each case. But in general, there are some specific things. And I go about this actually in my book. There's a chapter on changing unwanted behaviors too. So let's go over Teddy's specific issues that you'd want to change first. And then we'll see if I am broad enough by that, if we need to go further off after that. Yeah. So the first one is he puts his paws up on the dresser. Like if I set clothes out for the next day, or if I'm in the middle of changing clothes or whatever, he'll put his paws up on my dresser and snag something. And we've talked so much about puppy proofing our houses and my sweet beloved scooter was a counter surfer so like i'm when we kept talking about puppy proofing the house i'm like yeah like i'm so conditioned to not have food accessible but i'm just very much in the habit of setting my clothes out or like setting my pajamas out or whatever so how do i help him unlearn how fun it is to steal mom's clothes off of the dresser so that can go along with counter surfing actually and it can go along with anything where they're getting into stuff they shouldn't get into so i have another puppy that's in one of the current puppy classes who jumps on the counters when they're gone in the kitchen So the first part is, you know, you recognize what they are doing that you don't want them to do. You don't want him to to jump. So what would you want him to do instead? Well, maybe if he knew how to lay in a bed and stay on a bed while you were changing, 
then that would be the desired behavior. So we have to look at both. So we have to be training him eventually what the desired behavior is. So in this case, you might say, put him in a downstay on a dog bed. So, you know, he stays on a bed and he's in a downstay and you practice that so he can stay without the stimulation of you getting dressed and without all of that other stuff. So practice that so you have that to replace the behavior. And then for the jumping up, up onto the dresser, it's exactly like counter surfing. You know, he gets a, he gets one of your clothes and then you chase him or you have to grab it. And he's like, this is a fun game. So if a dog gets on the counter and they steal bread or cheese, they just got a huge reward. So that behavior itself is rewarding in itself. So that's why it continues is because they get a positive consequence and it's like, let's keep doing this. So in the dresser situation, while you're training that downstay, you know, you might not have that perfected tomorrow. So what you might need to do in the meantime is do management. So that might mean put him in his crate while you get dressed. If he would sit with um, some, you know, if you give him a Kong or a bone that he can chew on while you're getting dressed. So he has something else to do. If people don't have a crate there, they could do tie downs, you know, where they have them, you know, tie them to a, the bed post or, you know, with something like that. But then I would also encourage giving a Kong or a bone so they're not just sitting there tied. But that way they're not practicing dumb wanted behavior. So you've managed that until you have it. And then when you get the downstay on the bed, say really solid, then you can start doing it like, okay, I'm going to get dressed something kind of quick, maybe, you know, I'm just going to put on my shoes or I'm going to just put on a sweatshirt. So you have the sweatshirt up there, you put him in a down, say you put your sweatshirt on and then you can release him, you know, so it's not, you're getting dressed in a gown and you're going to be, you know, spending hours getting dressed. You're going to just do something quick and then gradually increase it more where you're like, okay, now I'm going to put on my shirt and my sweatshirt or my pants and my shirt, something that he can maintain that down, say on the bed. But if you're in a place where you can't manage that and teach and be working with him, then you're better off just putting him in the crate while you're doing it so that he doesn't keep practicing stealing it off the dresser. And that, like I said, that could go with anything stealing. So like if they steal things off the counter in the kitchen, then you might have to put a baby gate so they can't go in the kitchen, you know, block access. You make sure the counters are completely clear of any food so they don't get rewarded for that because that's the problem. Part of the reason these unwanted behaviors happen is because somehow they're rewarding to the dog. So whether they get a treat, whether they get you to chase them, you know, it's a reward and they're like, this is fun. So, and then, which I think we've talked about in previous episodes, we don't have to go into it in depth, but trading for a treat. So like if they take something trade rather than chase, cause chase is super fun, you know, teach them, drop it so that they have those words to, and that behavior learned. So you're not just expecting them to do something that they've never learned how to do. For the dresser, that would be a good, you know, kind of overview. And it fits in with counter surfing, which is also usually pretty common. What's his other behavior? When I walk down the stairs, he bites my feet. Oh, okay, perfect. So that is another situation of, okay, we don't want him chase, touching your feet. And there's lots of dogs who do this. Some race down the stairs too and trip people. So what I like to do with stairs, so we don't want them running up and down. You can start teaching them a sit stay at the top or the bottom of the stairs so that they have to wait for you until you go down. So it'd be practicing sit stay like you would any other time. Um, you know, first the duration and then sit, stay, and maybe you go down a couple steps and then go back and release them, sit, stay, 
And then eventually you sit, stay and you get to the bottom and then you call them and they wait. When I had to teach this to the first lab, the top, when I was a teenager, she would chase and like knock me down going down the stairs. So I just taught her to sit, stay at the top of the stairs until I got to the bottom and then she got to come down. And then when we went up, she had to sit, stay until we went up. And then eventually I didn't even have to tell her. It was just, this is what we do. You know, just like when you teach your dog to stop at a curb, when you, to sit every time you come to a curb, pretty soon the curb becomes the cue of sitting. So, oh, I'm at a curb. I should sit. So this will be, oh, they're going down the stairs. I need to sit. And so you can teach them that. Now, in the meantime, what you want to also do though, is make sure he's not, you know, biting your feet as you're going down. So that might mean that you have to put, get like a temporary leash that up and down the stairs. So you kind of have him on a leash. So you have a little bit of management and you can even have him have a treat that he's getting to pay a focus as he goes down and looking, you know, not so he falls down, but so he's not chewing at your feet and getting him. So he stops doing that. But that also means that if he's doing it any other time, like um, sometimes dogs like to play with feet and socks and chew on feet. So if you're just walking through the house and he's doing it, don't allow him to do that either. So that might mean you have to stop and you could do this on the stairs too. stop. And if they know, leave it, you can say, leave it and then give him a treat or stop and have him sit. And you take a couple steps, you know, redirect them so they have something else to do. Because a lot of times healers and border collies will nip at people's feet as their heels, as they're going, walking through the house or down the stairs. And so if you keep walking, then they keep going. But if you stop, you know, you turn around, you tell them, sit, stay down, give them something else to think about. Sometimes I'll even, if I have treats with me, I'll tell them, sit, stay, and then toss treats away from me. So they have to run to get the treats. And then it just breaks that habit of nipping. It's a lot harder to do in a breed that's bred to, to herd, but in like a lab, it's you know not as big of a deal because it's not like it's a natural lab behavior to do. So that would be something else. So pretty much whenever there's an unwanted behavior, people always, they come to me, I don't want my dog to jump. I don't want my dog to pull. I don't want my dog to bark. I don't want my dog to do that. And so sometimes I just come up with, well, let's have him do this instead. But sometimes I say, what would you rather have him do in that situation? And so you have to teach them because they don't know if we don't teach them. They don't just go, oh, I'm supposed to sit when people pet me. You know, we have to teach them. So if a dog's jumping on you and every time you push on them and you tell them off and you give them all this attention, they're getting, re they're getting reinforced for that touching and petting. And so then you need to teach them, okay, you sit and then that's when you get pet for the attention. So whenever you're looking at an unwanted behavior, you have to look at what can you do to replace that behavior? And then once, but you have to teach that, make sure it's solid. And then it's managing so they can't keep doing the unwanted behavior. So if they're barking at um, uh, the front door because you have it open because they can see the screen, then you got to close the door for a little while and then maybe teach them you know, to sit there and watch quietly, but you have to teach them to sit and watch quietly. So here's what I heard. So correct me when I start to get mm -hmm. it wrong. First, I need to just be honest and say, I wish my puppy didn't do this. I wish my <laughs> dog didn't do this. So identify the unwanted behavior. Yes. But then what I heard, I think this is the magic, is change it from a don't statement mm -hmm. to a do statement. Yes. So instead of, I don't want Teddy to steal my clothes from the dresser, I could say, I do want Teddy to lay quietly while I get dressed. Yes. Then 
we need to interrupt the behavior. So for me, that could maybe look like getting some like Tupperwares with a lid or something in the meantime, if I'm set on putting my clothes out in the morning so he doesn't, he, there's nothing loose for him to Possibly that would make it because then he wouldn't get reinforced or make him so he, you know, he has to be in a crate or in a tie down or, you know, something where he can't like it or, can't, you know, baby gate in, yeah. in other situations. So he mm -hmm. just can't get there to practice it. Yeah. So however you can interrupt that behavior from being practiced. So once we've first is the identification mm -hmm. phase, right? I don't want this turning into I do want this then it's blocking the existing behavior from being reinforced. Simultaneously, you're training the pieces of the wanted behavior. So for Teddy, that could be, you know, here's your bed. This is your spot. This is the place you go to settle. And then starting to integrate those two things. Yes. And then you replace it. And then eventually, you know, they do what you, but right now he's just doing what's fun to him. It works for me, mom. Well, I don't know what your problem is. You know, yeah. It's the big thing that when people come to me, they always say, I don't want my dog to do this. I don't want my dog to do this. And so I always try to change the mindset of, okay, that's fine. But then what do you want them to do? You know, and nobody really ever thinks that. That's why the way traditional training is, I don't want my dog to do this. So I'm going to punish them for doing this behavior. But traditional training typically doesn't always teach what they want them to do. Or if they do, it's taught out of fear. Like if you don't sit, I'm going to punish you, you know? So then it's not in a place of safe learning. It's like, okay, I'm just going to avoid doing that, but it doesn't build your confidence that way either. Talk to me about resource guarding. What is it and how do we interrupt it as soon as we see it starting to happen? Um, resource guarding, sometimes it comes with anxiety. So dogs who are, have some anxiety, sometimes it's dogs of how they've been raised. You know, like if they, if there was a big litter, you know, of 12 puppies and there wasn't enough, you know, so sometimes that's like that survival mode. But resource guarding is typically where a dog growls, bites, you know, or some cow shows aggression towards usually, I don't want you to take this. It could be a bone. It could be food, you know, their, their food. It could be a toy. Sometimes it's a person. Sometimes it's a couch. It's a bed. It just depends. Well, one, the first thing is don't do things to cause it. So a lot of times people think, well, I should just be able to take my dog, my puppy's food away, maybe in an emergency, but not on a regular. If somebody came and kept taking my chocolate pie away, I'd probably punch him in the face. So like, you know, <laughs> don't cause a problem when there doesn't need to be. Now, if you need, want to practice making sure you can, you can drop some high value treats next to the bowl, take it, but then give it back. Like you're not trying to steal it from them. You know, because sometimes something might drop or something. I'd like to do drop it with rawhide uh, bully sticks or something high value. And then you're trading the whole time, but they get it back and you're trading so that it doesn't become a thing of taking. My example that I like to give to people is if I was eating an ice cream cone and I'm enjoying my ice cream cone and a person came over and took it from me, the first time I'm just going to be startled and I'm going to go, hey, you know, what happened? But then if I was eating an ice cream again and they came again, I'm going to be more protective of my ice cream cone and say, you know, don't take it. And if they still took it the next time I saw them coming towards me, I'd probably say, stay away from me. Don't take my ice cream cone. Now, if they did the reverse where I was eating my ice cream cone and say I spent $5 on my ice cream cone and they're like, here's $20. I'd be like, 
great. Now I can go get more ice cream cones. And then the next time they came and they offered me the same thing, I go, okay, fine. By the time, if they did this a couple of times, I would almost go get an ice cream cone and just wait for them. You know, like, here, you want to take my ice cream cone? So then I'm emotionally not like feeling like someone's taking something from me. So it's, if you see it, it's really important to start, you know, doing the trade right away. Some, in some cases, if they're really guarding of something, um, like a real special bone, then maybe you don't give them the bone for a little while. Like don't give them that because it's too triggering and they need to mature a little bit more and you need to build that relationship a little bit more. It's the same thing. Like I don't, people ask me, oh, can my dogs be on the bed or a couch? I'm like, I don't really care if your dog's on the bed or couch, as long as they don't growl at you. And people do sometimes have dogs who will growl and like guard the bed. In that case, then the dog's not allowed on the bed until we fix that problem more. So a lot of times it comes though, and I, not always, but a lot of times I'll see it in families that have children because the kids take the toy away and think it's funny or take the bone away. Or, and I've had this with men, sometimes women, but men too, where they think they should be kind of in charge and they'll take it away just because they should be able to. Like not, there's no reason. It's just like, oh, well, I should just be able to take anything from my dog. And like, if I can flip it on them and say, well, do you want people to be able to take anything away from you? Probably not. So maybe we need to rethink that, you know, thought process of everything is mine, but it's good for dogs to learn because sometimes you're going to drop a chicken bone might get dropped and we don't want them to have that. And so that's also, we're teaching drop it where drop it becomes you ask them to do it. They do it eventually once you teach them and they get rewarded. And so then pretty soon it's like asking somebody like, Hey, can I borrow $5? Well, if you have a good relationship with that person, you're like, Oh, here it is. But if you don't, you're going to be like, no, I'm not going to give you $5. So you build that relationship with it. And I do see it oftentimes a little bit more in dogs who have some genetic anxiety, you know, like really young dogs tend to show it a little bit more, but it can also happen by, like I said, if they're raised with kids or someone in the household who feels like they should take everything away. You know, sometimes people come to me and they're so proud. I've never, my dog knows I can take their bull away anytime because every day I take it away. And I'm just like, well, it's not really fair. You know, I don't want to make it so it's something that they have to have. Sometimes they'll research guard against other dogs. And that's a little more complicated because there's other things going on. So you have to separate and work on them. Usually if it's like food, it's easier just to separate dogs that might fight over food because it's a complicated process that is such a short, if they eat their food really fast, it's like sometimes management is just a better solution if to keep the peace, if that's the only thing they fight over, you know, and then other dogs, you know, don't just don't care, you know? And so, but it's good if you can catch it early, it's better to than waiting until later to, to intervene with that. A recurring theme in everything. And I know it's one of your methodologies for training is of course, like rewards based. We're doing force-free positive only. Talk to me about the different dog love languages, because they're all different, right? Yes. And my lovely scooter, he was food, 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 food. Mm -hmm. And Teddy isn't so yeah. much, even though he's a lab, he, he doesn't perform for food sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what could be some of his other love languages? And how do I, you know, I'm just so conditioned 
that yeah. when I have a treat, I'm going to ask you to do something and you're <laughs> going to do it. Yeah. Um, that was scooters. So what other things should I try? So food we like, cause it's goes away really fast and it's easy to carry and stuff. And puppies are a little hard because, you know, we're feeding them and they're growing so fast, but making sure they're, you know, not getting fed too much. So like some things you can do is don't feed them before a training session or feed them a part of their dinner before a training session or breakfast, whatever, so that they're not coming in with a full stomach because, you know, like I love, you know, Bordeaux sees candy, but, and I would do a lot for that. But if I just ate, you know, a huge dinner and I was so full, even that's not going to sound good to me. You know, you can do that is one thing is either cut back their food a little bit if it's all the time or, you know, because when we're giving treats, we have to remember that that's calories too. So we, you know, they're still getting calories and they're just getting it from a different source. So cutting back is necessary or not feeding before training. But then there's other things like some dogs really like toys. There are some that are super toy motivated and they will play, play with toys more. Toys just make some training behaviors difficult because you have to let them play. Then you have to get them to drop it. And then, you know, you don't get as many repetitions in, but you can do different toys, tug and stuff like that. There's a lot of dogs who do really like tug and that will be very rewarding for them. And sometimes even people train their dogs to like tug, kind of like a clicker kind of situation where they condition the tug to be a reinforcer if they need to. Um, I have taught some dogs with a tennis ball that are I, I just remember the dog years ago who was struggling with weave pulls. So he could do them, but he was slow, but the ball was super rewarding. So when he did the weave pulls fast, I threw the ball for him. And if he did them slow, he didn't get the ball. So he eventually got really fast at weave pulls because he liked chasing the tennis ball. You can do sit and then throw the ball down, do the ball, you know, those kinds of things as reinforcers if they like the ball. But sometimes they get too excited with the ball. So then their learning is difficult. So it's finding that. Some dogs really like, you know, scratches at certain places, you know, on their head or on their chest. And then there'll be some things that it's attention. Like one thing, my lab, he, if I smile and before he's deaf now, but if I laughed, that was a huge reinforcer, which I found accidental because he started doing things that were kind of naughty because I laughed. And so I had to be a little more management of not laughing when he did naughty things if I didn't want it repeated. So that can be, you know, something. So you just have to kind of find, you know, there's different toys that they will like or balls. And then also it's being creative on your treats because some dogs are a little bit more picky about things. And so then they don't have like, they don't just want the generic treats. You have to find different things. And then something that's always important to know when you're training is that there's high levels of stress or distraction. It doesn't really matter what your reinforcer is. Um, because if they're too stressed, they can't focus on what their behaviors are being trained anyway, or if they're too distracted. And like with puppies, that's a thing that happens. You know, if you go to a park and it's the first time at the park, you're probably not gonna get any training done because there's just too much for them to focus on because it's all new and the smells are new. And that's also where if you go to like, uh, you know, there's just different things that can be too distracting for them to want to be able to even to do it at that time or scary and anxious dogs tend to have a little harder time with that as well. And so it's, it's important that you kind of look at all of those factors. The other thing that's really important, and this is something I think that gets missed in puppy class that I try to tell people, but is 
some puppies, like I just had this private dog today and they had like a five minute attention span and then they shut down. So it's important to practice a lot in your house and your backyard. And sometimes people think, oh, well, they did, they did sit fine and we did it five times. And so now they know it. So I should go to the park. Well, but they need to do it five times, five times a day for five weeks. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's not a one-time deal. It's not, oh, I taught this one week. And sometimes people only train, you know, five minutes, one times a day, which is fine, but they can't expect perfection in a week for that new behavior. And then especially if there's distractions. So I always tell people do multiple short sessions throughout the day. Even if you think, oh, oh it's just sit. It doesn't matter that you to your dog, it's still a new behavior. And then if you're adding stay and you're adding a duration or you're adding distance, and then maybe you add distractions by you clap, but you do that in your house until they're pretty darn good. Then you can go to the backyard and go, okay, now you've got a whole nother scenario happening. So you're going to start over almost from short duration, short distance, no distraction, extra besides being outside, then build that up. Then when that's strong, go outside to the front yard. And then what you're also building there is some resilience and learning to learn. You know, they're like learning that their behavior has a consequence and then they can earn these treats or toys or whatever, but it takes a lot of repetition. And some dogs get things faster than others, but you have to put the time and the repetition in because that happens sometimes when I teach puppy classes and people have maybe worked on it a little bit. And then they expect their dog to be perfect when they come to class and that's not going to happen no matter what. But sometimes they don't only practice once a week and then they don't know why their dog isn't doing it in class. Well, they're barely doing it at their own home. So if they can't do it at their home, they're not going to be able to do it well. And they're going to struggle in class if they're not getting lots of practice at home, you know, and maybe in the backyard or front yard where there's some distraction. So Probably more than anything, when people struggle, sometimes it's food, but sometimes it is, they're not really putting in enough time and practice to get the behavior to move forward. You know, it takes lots and lots of repetitions to get something, you know, pretty mastered. When you see dogs in agility trials, or you see dance dogs doing freestyle or any of those things. They have spent thousands and thousands of hours practicing to get to that level and five minutes a day, seven days a week, 35 minutes, you know, a, a week is not going to get you that kind of result. You need to be doing, you know, doing five minutes, like three times a day, then you're going to start making some, you know, there's going to be some predictability with it. But uh, oftentimes puppies get expected to do a lot more than their even mentally able to do and they haven't been trained to do it. So it would be like, you know, if I took one Japanese class and in, you know, or I studied Japanese five times, five minutes, seven days a week, and I'd be expected to be fluent by in a week, that's not going to happen. Like I probably will barely even be able to remember a symbol because it's right. so foreign, you know? So we have to remember that all of this is foreign and we are, you know, asking them to do things. So sometimes it's finding different treats. Sometimes it's making sure they're hungry because if they're full, that's the reason food's not motivating, you know, is because they're just so full. And then making sure you get good varieties of treats. Cause you know, some people often just go to the pet store and they're like, oh, I just got this 
you know, one preserve and some of them, if you ever open some treats, they smell like chemicals. Like I've opened some dog treats before that I've gotten and I'm like, gross, you know, like this doesn't even smell like, you know, meat or something, or sometimes they will be fruity, you know, blueberry and you know, whatever. And it's, you can tell it's like what my blueberry bubble gum would taste like, you know, not real blueberries. You have to look at all of those things. And that's where sometimes I like hot dogs and, and cheese and if, you know, chicken, yeah. And chicken. Cause at least I know exactly what that is. And sometimes these dog treats are filled with, you know, other things anyway. And dogs don't like that. And you have to remember their sense of smell is so much stronger than ours that if there's bad, like preservatives in there that have an odor, they might not like that either. So, but then there's other dogs that will eat anything, but that's probably a lot of it. It's just figuring that, managing that. I was so surprised you helped me have an epiphany at this week's puppy class because Teddy cannot do anything in puppy class. Like he's (laughs) just like, we're like, it's, it's like, we've never done a single thing in our whole like time Mm -hmm. together. But when I walk him around Lowe's because he loves people so much, he perfect loose leash Mm -hmm. walking. Every time I stop, he sits like he, he's like, the perfect dog and you were like well yeah because like he loves people they're exciting but Mm -hmm. like he's distracted by the dogs and so even though in my mind like being at at your center would be less distraction than being at Lowe's with like a thousand people for him the dogs are way more interesting than the piece of cheese that I have Exactly. And that, because since Teddy's also done and anybody who looks at our, the pictures and the photo gallery that we start, that we'll be adding more into the podcast, you know, he's done already done some therapy work, you know, with Karen Pryor at her center at the center she's living in. And he's so natural for being young. I mean, he doesn't jump on them. He sits, he lays down, he takes treats from them fairly nicely. I mean, as long as the human doesn't pull it away, he doesn't snatch them, you know, he's good. He really loves that. But you've also taken him to all these different breweries and he's gone to, you work so hard on having him be comfortable with people because Scooter didn't like people that he's like, oh, people are cool and they give me treats and stuff, but dogs, he doesn't get to spend time with every day. And the dogs at puppy class play really crazy with him. And he loves to play crazy where like my dogs, because at my house, we have dogs all the time, boarding and stuff. My dogs, when they were younger, now they're too old to play with everybody. But they were like, oh my God, mom, do we really have to play with another dog? And they enjoy people, like the people was a different thing, but it's just what they're used to. But when he's there, it is. But a way you could practice that. So if you have a situation like this, you could take him to places where people have dogs on leash. So you didn't have to worry about him being ambushed. So a park or pet store or something where you practice a little bit in those environments where there's other dogs that he can't play with, because that's part of what puppies need to learn too. And that's what they, why they don't get to play the whole time in puppy classes. They have to learn that sometimes you don't get to play with the dog and you have to be okay with that too. So, you know, getting him. So he's used to, cause every time he's with a dog, when he comes to me, when he goes with friends, he always gets to play with the dog. There's no self-control involved when dogs are around. And so when he comes to puppy class, he's like, but when I'm all that stuff, I practice during the week, I just get to play with them like crazy. So he doesn't know those other skills, which will come with time. 
but that's where, when I have, I sometimes have puppies in puppy class that won't do anything because they're so scared. And I tell the people keep coming because this is a safe place for them to be exposed to other dogs. And maybe you just are learning what you need to teach at home. You know, you take what you learn from puppy class and you practice it at home. And then in that quiet environment, but those shy puppies, if they stick with it, I don't know if I've ever had a puppy not come out of their shell by the end of classes where they, maybe they don't play crazy with everybody, but they eventually, you know, do some of the things they come out. They're a little bit braver and anything is better. And some of them, it's like night and day. They're like different dogs after doing puppy class. It's just that distraction and, and then figuring out like, yeah, what, what's extra distracting or what's fearful. And then just working with that and then teaching in those environments slowly too. Talk to me about building a connection with my puppies. I've definitely felt this and I've heard it from some of our our friends at puppy class and and actually I was I was talking to somebody and they must be on their first dog but they they were like I can't imagine loving a dog as much as I love my dog. I couldn't imagine having a different dog, let alone a different breed or, you know, a different personality. And I really experienced this getting Teddy where I was so connected with Scooter, you know, he was almost 10 and I got him when he was eight weeks old. You know, we, we were really deeply bonded and I feel like I'm just now developing that like really, really like deep bond and love and just like oh you're just like the most perfect baby and I'm just developing that now with Teddy so talk to me about let's acknowledge that it can take some time totally I was just gonna say you took time between Scooter and Teddy which I think is important I think some people they feel that void when they lose a dog and then they jump in and get a puppy and then all they do is compare and I get those people come to me private this dog doesn't do this, but really the dog's not doing any problem behaviors in reality. The people just don't like it because it's not what the other dog did. So that's not fair to the dog, you know, to have that. So that's part of it. You know, like we gotta be fair with these. This isn't fair to these dogs. Like sometimes it's us. Sometimes it's, we've got a closed heart. We aren't open. We're comparing them. Maybe they aren't the dog we envisioned we were going to get. Maybe they have behaviors that we didn't expect that sometimes that oftentimes happens when people don't plan well. So they need to go back to our first episode of puppy podcast. Cause if you get the wrong match, you know, you're a couch potato and you get a border collie. I have some clients who have an amazing healer. I mean, he would be a great dog for me if I was ready to have a, a puppy, but they are not dog training to people. Like they just want a dog. Who's kind of easy. Who's easy to train. And this dog is very active. He's very smart and he's very good, but he's almost too smart for them because he's always like, come on, let's do this. Let's do that. And they just want a chill dog. So Mm -hmm. they're having a hard time bonding because they, it's a mismatch. So it almost be like, if you married the wrong person kind of thing, you know, it just never will work right. And then also sometimes it's, you know, the dog's personality. If you have the independent dog, the more confident dog, and they don't need you as much, it's actually a good thing because now they're not going to have anxiety and fear and, and, and that kind of stuff. But then you can feel a little bit like, well, they don't even need me. This happens as parents too, from a children, like I have three and they're so different. You know, my first was never cuddly. She's still not cuddly. She's on the spectrum and not 
she's never going to be my cuddle bug. And then my middle one is crazy, ADHD, you know, bounce always has bounced off the wall. I thought he was going to kill himself by the time he was five from jumping off of things or hurting himself. Also, not a cuddler, you know, enjoy spending time with me and they both do, but not a cuddler. But my youngest was always more of a cuddler since he was newborn. You know, it was just like in his DNA. So same parents, same raising, but just different individuals. So you'll have that with dogs too, where you'll have some that are more cuddly. Sometimes the more fearful dogs are the more cuddly ones because they're not doing it because they want to cuddle you, but they feel scared and they feel safer with you. But it comes by building bonds. And I'll tell you, like with Captain, he's my lab mix and he was my Karen Pryor Academy dog. So we like, he was my, he, I competed with him in agility. So we're like teammates. We're like friends. We're like, um, you know, like we are very, very close, but he is questionable. He's a big black dog. So sometimes he doesn't want to cuddle because he's hot or, you know, but then other times he really wants to cuddle and he likes petting, but we always have kind of an agreement. Like I always kiss him on the face. is not always like to be kissed on the face, but you know, over time it's become okay. But my Jack Russell is interesting. So she was very independent, hated really snuggling with, you know, sleep by my feet, you know, under the bed, but never really wanted to cuddle up on my chest or anything. And then over time, I just gave her time, you know, and like, sometimes we'd go to bed and she'd be by my pillow and I pet her for, you know, a couple minutes and then she'd run down to the bend of the bed. I was like, okay. And then she stayed maybe for eight minutes. And then now she basically sometimes sleeps on my chest where I have to move her because I can't sleep. But now she like sleeps and she wants to cuddle before we go to bed and we have a whole routine, but that just took time of her deciding it was okay. And she's wasn't a cuddler, but then it became beneficial. You know, when I have people who are like, I really want them to, to cuddle. If you have the really crazy dog that you just want to teach, sometimes I'll tell them like, get a stuffed Kong or get a bone or get a bully stick or something and sit on the floor or on the chair or wherever, depending how size of the dog, let them chew on that and get them used to the sensation of you petting them and calmly petting them, like relaxing and then do that for five minutes and then let them go. And then maybe next time they'll stay longer and you can kind of condition them to training, but it just takes some time. But the big thing, I think that oftentimes and when people try to chase them and force them, it repels those dogs who don't want to be cuddled. And I'll give you one more example because I just thought about it with Scout. Scout, my middle son, bounce off the walls. She was like, he's crazy. He's not safe when she was young and he was young. So she would nip at him and stuff. And he was so determined. Uh, Mom, I want Scout to be my friend. I want Scout to like him. And so, you know, kid with ADHD, that it's, it was a challenge on both ends. So he would sit on the floor, those legs crossed, and I gave him treats for her to have. And he had to pet her. And I told him, your job is to stay still and quiet petting, not scratchy petting, not wild stimulating petting, but like long strokes and give her treats. And when she wants to get up, you let her get up. To this day, she's 11 now, and this was probably when she was two. To this day, I'm number one and he is number two. Like she still like will do more for him than he she will for the other two who she's always loved, just not been as, you know, involved. But it it was taking that trust, you know, because for her, she's very like you could lose trust really quick. Like now our emotional bank account is so full that I can do things like trim her nails or take her to the vet and she doesn't hate me for the rest of her life. 
but she she will become skeptical of people very easily, especially when she was younger. She's developed more trust now, but you know, it's just individuals, but it's going slow. And I think a lot of times what happens is people always want to do fast, rough and tumble stuff with puppies. And that's counteractive to what, when it's, it's not, it's exact opposite of what you want when you want a snuggler. So if you can stay calm and like sit on the floor with them or at the bed or wherever they are and be calm and not always be engaging in them, like wrestling, playing, tugging, but just being and you're being calm then they're such go oh that's a calm energy that i want to kind of be attracted to but so many times people see puppies and you, you know if you're always stimulating them they don't even know how to be calm with you so and i see that all the time because i'll I, because i work with dogs who will bite me when they work with me you know i have to stay very calm and still and then they'll approach me and they'll sniff me but i don't reach down to pet them you know, I'll toss a treat on the floor before I'm going to pet them. And people will say, gosh, they're so much more comfortable with you, but it's because I'm not forcing myself on them, you know? So I'm keeping things calm and, and a little bit more centered for them. Well, and I think just, you know, like you said, every, every kid is different, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter how much you planned for, hoped for, worked towards every single kid is different and has different interests and aptitudes and abilities. And, you know, when I got Scooter, I knew I wanted to do therapy with my dog. My mom did therapy, dog therapy all growing up. I saw how powerful it was. I did equine therapy with people with special needs. Like this is something that I must do in my life is animal therapy. Mm -hmm. And so I knew I wanted to do that with Scooter. And then I got him and that was not his job at all. And he would never have been successful at yep. being a therapy dog, no matter what I did. Yep. And so instead we developed other mm -hmm. loves like agility going to the beach. He knew so many stupid tricks because like, we just loved training tricks together yeah, we tried exactly. diving it was tough for me to let go and just say like okay my dream of doing therapy is not a scooter dream and he'll never be able to do it and so then just sort of rebuilding our shared experience and our shared hobbies to be something that would work for both of us because therapy would never have worked for him. Well, in all relationships, unrealistic expectations just lead to resentment. So if you stick hard to, I want this, and that's not the dog you get, then you will be resentful. And I see clients who are resentful to their dog because they can't do, you know, take them on trips or whatever. And a lot of times, again, that goes back to making sure you choose. I mean, you can't be a hundred percent, but you can really evaluate or get help evaluating a dog that's if it's right for you or not in your family, because that makes a big difference. And I'm super picky. So my dogs now scout never really loved agility. I mean, maybe if I had kind of put more time into it, I could have, but captain loved it so much. It was fine. Like she got to do it for fun. That was my goal with Captain is I wanted an agility dog. Like, and so I was really careful when I picked him of what I was going to, you know, get with that. And it is just like with kids, like what I wanted from my daughter, maybe never, ever happened. Or my son, you know, you have to kind of see who they are. And then if you're really set on something like with Teddy, we were way more careful, like, okay, this is something you want. And um, so we looked for dogs that 
had those characteristics to be more of a, of a therapy dog. And um, when I used to evaluate dogs for therapy dogs, there would be times I would do the test dog would pass. And I would tell the people, but your dog has no interest in this. Like they did it because they're obedient and they're well-trained, but they don't have a heart for it. You know, like they just weren't into doing it. There's just a different way that therapy dogs act when they really want to do it. You know, it's kind of like agility dogs. Like I have dogs in my agility classes who are doing it because it's fun, but they would have no interest in competing. Like that would not be in their wheelhouse at all. And, and you just kind of find those, you know, things that they're special to that dog. Well, and I love walking with, loved walking with Scooter. That was one of our core activities. Teddy has no interest yeah we can barely get around one block and he'll lay down like 10 times in a (laughs) in a one block and so you know I'm gonna keep giving him the opportunities and blah 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 Mm -hmm. but like it may be that Teddy never actually comes on our like four mile walks that you and I exactly because when he's 100 pounds I'm not gonna keep pushing him in a stroller (laughs) So, you know, it just might be, you know, like in the same way that I had to let go of Scooter doing therapy, I might have to let go of like Teddy being my walking buddy because it just might not be his thing. That happens with dogs who are fearful of walks. I have to, you know, change people's expectations. I had a foster dog that my brother ended up adopting years ago and he's a personal trainer. So he he liked running. He would go on like a five mile run. And he'd have to go in a loop because she could do about one mile and then she would lay down. So he couldn't go out for two and a half miles or he'd be carrying a dog back for two and a half miles. So he, you know, just made loops. Like he ran one mile and then he'd take her back and then he did the rest of his four miles. And when she was my foster dog, we took her on a hike once that all the other dogs were fine. We had to carry her back down a dirt hill because she didn't want to hike anymore. And I was like, okay, she doesn't go on the long hikes anymore, <laughs> but nope. it's just the expectations nope. that they have to, yeah, that you just have to go through, you know, it's just figuring out who your dog is and, and then finding out what they love and what they don't love. And it's like any other relationship, you know, you have friends right. that, you know, like to do some things and friends that don't like to do other things. So, you know, you and I will go see live music, but I have another friend who has absolutely no interest in live music. So we just do other things, you know, you and I like to walk and hike. I have, you know, another friend who doesn't like to walk and hike. So we don't do those things. You know, you just find things you have in common and dogs will, you know, try different things slowly. Sometimes it just depends on, you know, it's just like, it's just like people. And it's probably my little soapbox of things right now is people need to really start understanding that dogs have feelings and emotions and they're brains and they can think and we have to start being a more understanding about them in different you know situations and that they're not robots and you know if we punish them for everything they do they're never going to trust us you know so and that starts with the puppies you know it appears that we will never get to the end of my questions because we again didn't get through my list and we've come up on just about an hour and we try to keep it to an hour but you and I can talk for forever i i've already categorized my remaining questions to fit under next week's theme my that friend. is perfect kind of promise people with this pup positive puppy podcast that you know we will keep going until 
we don't have puppy questions anymore because it's a way for people to just start being more understanding for their puppies because that's where it starts. I mean, if we did a better job with our puppies, then we wouldn't have to have them rehomed. You know, if we started from the beginning and we adopted the right ones or we did the right socialization and we did the things that we need, you know, it'd be easier and to for them to live in our world because our human world's kind of hard sometimes for them well so. thank you very much and we'll talk again in a week well thank you so much and thank you all for joining us for our positive puppy podcast and like i said before check out past episodes you can always re-listen and if you know someone who has a puppy please share this we definitely want to be able to help people with their puppies so until next time we'll see you then thank you emily <laughs>